Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Executive at AMBA and BGA. A couple of weeks ago, we had the AMBA and BGA Festival of Excellence, where Sheree Aitchison, Global Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at PECON, spoke on a panel about diversity and inclusion. It was such an interesting discussion, and we had to have her on the podcast to talk about some of the topics in more depth. In this podcast, we talk about how organisations' diversity and inclusion initiatives have to account for intersectionality, be data-driven and work for everyone. Sheree also talked about how we need to move into an accountability culture, not a cancel culture. Here's a discussion. So, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Yes, so I am Sheree Atchison and I am an award-winning global diversity, equity and inclusion leader and I've been doing this work for almost a decade. Um, I am currently PECON, which is a global ex- employee experience platform, their global director of DE&I um, and I've held senior leadership roles at Monzo Bank, at Deloitte and helped a lot of other organisations. I'm also a board member at Women Who Code, which is the world's largest nonprofit globally dedicated to women in technology. Um, and I am also the published author of Demanding More, which is a book to help all of us learn about how the world has been exclusive so we can be purposefully inclusive moving forward. Amazing. Well, I do want to talk to you about your book, but I have a couple of questions before that. Of course. Um, so in your opinion, why are some organisations still lagging behind on diversity and inclusion? And what's stopping them from fully committing, especially when there's so much evidence out there that shows it's actually financially positive thing for them to do? Yeah, I think that there's a number of reasons. One, it's it's difficult work, meaning that it it actively has to dismantle and change the processes, policies, ways of working and so on that your business does. And that means shining quite a hard light on some of the discriminatory processes and policy that you may have either you haven't realized that they are or that you have realized and you don't care and there's a combination of that and a lot of businesses one don't know what to do when they find out that information it's why we see a lack of transparency when it comes to DE&I related data certainly from a demographic perspective but also from an inclusion perspective with two very different types of data the other the other thing is that it requires expertise to do this work and it's certainly around um, you know stakeholder management around data aggregation and analytics around understanding the le- the legal issues in various different countries certainly if it's a global role and how to do this work at scale and if you don't have someone in the business that knows how to do that then it takes a a form of something that isn't so strategic, but rather more community driven. Now, both things are incredibly important, but realistically in any business to get something done in a way that's measured, that has metrics, and that is scalable with how your business changes. Keep in mind that everybody's business has changed in the last 12 months, whether it's been positive, negative, or, or whatever it might be. But you need someone to drive that with expertise. And um, too often we conflate passion for skill set in DE&I. And that means that things don't change. So there's a combination of both. But I think the main one is really that organizations don't know what to do because one, they haven't spent the time to find out. And two, they know that the problem is bad and they would rather not discover it. So as then they don't have to address the problem. That's very interesting. And you mentioned a little bit there, but also when you were in the panel for the AMBAMBG Festival of Excellence, how to measure diversity and inclusion in organisations to make sure these initiatives are working. 
Um, but within this, and just now you mentioned that inclusion and diversity is different and needs to be reported on differently. And I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit more about that, what that means. Yeah, of course. So think about it in, in this way. When we talk about diversity, we're talking about representation for the most part. Who is in the room and what backgrounds are they from? When we're talking about inclusion, we're talking about the treatment behaviours and policies around supporting all of those different kinds of people. You know, does the workplace actually work? For all of those people. It's all well and good to have diverse representation, but that is not a signifier alone of inclusion. And I did a for, I write for Forbes regularly, and I did a Forbes piece on this um, just last week, because the problem is that we many organizations have based their success of DEI on their diversity demographics only, without actually representing the inclusion side of things, measuring how people from all different backgrounds feel around things like diversity, inclusiveness, non-discrimination, fair opportunities, management support, and all of those things that actually make up how you live day to day. Um, Your representation is only one part of that. Now, we see some organizations, certainly when you think about attrition or retention, when around um, using diversity demographics, you know, seeing how many, what the retention rates are like for women or people of color, women of color, and so on. But that's still not enough because that doesn't and give you the day-to-day nuance that you need to understand actually does this workplace work for let's say disabled people versus non-disabled people or disabled people of color versus non-disabled people of color and thinking about it in that lens that it's all very intersectional and linked and that's why data reporting and data analysis is incredibly important in this work because you know data doesn't lie it's a one or a zero and that's it you can't argue with it and that's why it's, it's really important. So to go back on your point about measuring, how can organisations measure? It seems to be quite like minute detail and how can they hold the organisation accountable? Yeah, so certainly, and, and that's what I do at PECON. Um, we, we provide a solution that allows people and enables people to give every single employee a voice whilst also using a GDPR compliant way to capture those protected characteristics data, which means that you're able to ask those different questions from you know a question set but break it down to see, you know, do people, let's even say, from a regional basis feel different? Why do they feel that way? What are the drivers and stuff that we're seeing that are changing dependent on, let's say, how you go through the year? And it's about investing in something like that that allows you to have that touch point. What we do see is people trying to fill that gap with, um, you know, facilitated roundtables or one-to-one sessions. But that doesn't scale. And it also only gives you a very singular point in time view. Um, I want people to think again of of last year. If you did those kind of roundtables or one-off survey kind of things at the start of last year, and that was your annual touch point, would that have captured to the middle of March when we went into pandemic and into a lockdown? No. Would it have captured the fact that we had the globalization of the Black Lives Matter movements in the middle of the year? No. What about the next lockdowns that we had? What about the presidential election that has influenced the entire world? What about the insurrection that has just happened? You miss all of these things that change how people feel in the workplace. And that's why this regular temperature tech and touch point is important. And I, I used to be a software engineer, so I take a very technical view of this, and I think that's important. But the the key part here is, does it scale? Does what you're doing scale? And if it doesn't, then it's not the right thing. Because what you do now, let's say you do something that influences the entire company through one thing that you do today. Okay, but what about the fact that you've hired five new people tomorrow? How does that scale? It doesn't scale. So it's about thinking about how you integrate these kinds of listening methodologies and systems and so on into the entire employee life cycle, as opposed to just being reactive 
when something happens as opposed to proactive, which are two very different things. You just mentioned mentioned about the Black Lives Matter movement and you also talked about that in the festival. You said that there was a lot of people talking about the Black Lives Matter movement during summer, but this was perhaps dropping off a little bit. And how do you think that organisations can continue to carry on the conversation? And do you think there was enough action during the summer or do you think it was not enough action and just too much conversation? I think it was a bit of both. I think there was some organisations certainly that um, stepped up um, I know I know we've seen like organizations like Ben and Jerry's whose work has been rooted in activism for years, but certainly stepping up and making changes. However, there are lots of organizations that um, posted a black square in the summer and then moved forward. And that was it or did a, a one off donation. And that was it. And what we need to talk about here is the systemic changes. You know, a one off conversation doesn't fix anything that just is a a very minimal start the one-off donation is a very minimal start as opposed to like a long-term piece of strategic investment in you know whether it's getting young black folks into the pipeline whether it's supporting black folks in the industry whether it's putting a very clear equitable lens on your processes to check if they are anti-racist or not if you haven't checked that they are it's highly likely that they are because that's the point. It's as if society is racist, which it is in many, many ways in its processes and how it favors some over others and your business hasn't actively challenged that and done stuff to dismantle that internally, then it will be the same. And that's why you have to be really deliberate about what you're doing. And I think what I would really like for organizations is to remember that this is a journey. What we saw in the summer and certainly why I was incredibly busy with the amount of requests and stuff that I had from from people um, as a consultant was that you won't fix this overnight. So trying to be, you know, okay, we've looked at this and this is what we're doing right away is not realistic. That's not how you fix a long-term problem. And that really starts from that listening piece, understanding where the problems is and being really data-driven on how people are feeling in the workplace, how people are being treated, who you're reaching in your talent pipeline and who you're not reaching, who's falling out at what stage and why and having interventions at that. And that's where I need organizations to get to is understanding that this is a long term piece and that, yes, it's great that you've started, but like you won't fix this in a year. Absolutely not. So you need to be willing to invest the time and the money and the effort to do this um, because, you know, time and money is great. But if no effort happens, nothing happens. If effort and time happens, but no money, then nothing happens. So you need a combination of those three things to really um, move forward with purpose. You think the media is at fault here as well because there was so much coverage over summer and now it's kind of tilted off and do you think that's do you think the media has a role in kind of organizations to make these changes and not just make that one-off donation i think the media has a role in a lot of things because um we have to think i i when i talk about this i think it's important that people think about how they are raised and socialized you know whenever you grew up who was around you what was the belief systems around you? How did you grow up? How were you raised ultimately? Though that phrase, how were you raised, is incredibly important. What media was always in your house? Now, the media that's in our houses, that's in our ears, that's on our Twitter feeds, on our LinkedIn's, on our TVs at six o'clock at night, influence our thinking. They influence our bias. They influence our how we lean. They influence what we deem as important and what we deem as not important. The key thing here is here that the media was talking a lot in the summer of last year and that was very much needed but what the media has also done on many occasions has been 
vilify black people regularly. And I talk about this in my book where we see when you extrapolate out even from, you know, black people to people of color and certainly how, for example, how um, white terrorists versus brown and black terrorists are communicated about how um, mental health um, aid is talked about when it comes to white people versus black and brown people. When we even see things like how footballers are treated here in the UK, when we see how Raheem Sterling is being treated and Marcus Rashford, who is quite literally a national hero, um, is still treated um, by the media at times. Um, and that's what we need to talk about here. The media also needs to be held to account that it's not good enough that one week you post about supporting black people and then the next week you vilify someone because of something to do with nothing of what they're talking about. Like we saw just last week, a journalist creating up a, a story in his head that went viral around what happens now when BLM will tear down a statue of Sir, Sir Captain Tom Moore, when the statue one doesn't exist and two, nobody has even said anything like that, but already stoking those tensions. And that's where the media's role is really important here is that what do you want to do about this? How do you want to change things? Are you, do you want to do stuff for the better? Or do you want to continue to stoke um, and that's what I think is really important. And what I also say to people is be careful about what media you, I guess, I think ingest is the perfect word because that's what we take in. It's what we talk about with our families, our friends, whatever it might be. Think about the media that you, you, you listen to and that you deem as important. And is it biased or can you look at something that's balanced, supposed to incredibly biased because, you know, that's what exists out there. Yeah, I think in this day and age, you still need to question absolutely everything mm-hmm. you Reading your article, Women Are Not a Monolith, mm. and we must stop treating them as one from Forbes. Um, we talked about intersectionality a little bit already, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about it. Um, because it seems to add a level of complexity to diversity and inclusion that organisations don't seem to be getting yet. Um, how do you think the organisations should recognise intersectionality in their initiatives? Yeah, I, and, I, and I wrote that piece because um, over that weekend... Um, an organization had released research on the impact of job losses in the US um, on people as a whole. And this, the headline was ultimately women have been at the brunt of losses um, in comparison to everyone. But what actually, when you read the article, um, white men and white women gained net gains versus actually the only people that had net losses were black and the teen women. So it completely buried the title. The title was facetious because we're not talking about women as a blanket because the same problems don't exist for people like me and people not like me. And certainly as a woman of color and certainly as not, I'm not a black woman. So black women's issues are very different. And what's important here is that organizations don't take that blanket approach. Um, I, I spend a lot of time with organizations helping them understand intersectionality. And this is where the data is really important again, because we've seen from research has shown us that in the last decade of DEI work, the majority of people to benefit from that are heterosexual, able-bodied, financially stable white women. And that's again because of the level of privilege that comes with that. And when we when we create strategies that benefit people in that way, we're creating exclusionary inclusion. So it's just enough to be inclusive for one very small group, but actually everybody else has been forgotten about. And that's why that data is important. Understanding how, for example, women of color in your workplace feel versus white women, versus understanding how people and women in different regions with the different cultural aspects that you have feel are being treated and so on. And data is the hook of all of that stuff because otherwise you're making assumptions and assumptions are riddled with bias. And 
the, the problem that we have with organizations not taking that approach is like I mentioned that DE&I strategies have just been more exclusion for different people over and over and over again. And the reason why I think that's happened is one, because for the most part, the majority of people in senior leadership are heterosexual, non-disabled white men. Okay, we know that the stats are there. We know the facts. The people that those people most closely identify with are the same counterparts in women. So it's much easier to bring those people involved to understand why we would want to fix that problem and so on without actually realizing that you shouldn't have to directly identify with anyone to want to make a, the workplace better, to make society better for those people. The other thing is we know that people of color and certainly black people have been are the most marginalized groups. And what's important around that is that we be really rigorous with what we're going to do to make sure that inclus- inclusion in this is deliberate and intersectionality has to be deliberate. Like I had someone ask me, I can't remember what it was for not too long ago, if I felt like I was treated more poorly based on whether I was a woman or a person of color. And I was like, I don't, I can't do that <laughs> because like I, I go into a room, I turn on my video, nobody will see me as one or the other. I'm a, I'm a joint of both things. There's no possibility for me to be able to separate that. And that's the thing, you, people fit in a culmination of things. And it's important that your strategy answers to that. Absolutely. Um, so this is a bit of a maybe like personal interest thing, but I'm wondering if I could get your opinion on cancel con- culture, because could it be seen as a good thing that society has the power to cancel things that it sees as being wrong? Or is it dangerous that organisations or leaders who are maybe trying to do the right thing, but maybe get it wrong are being kind of criminalized. Um, I, I did a I did a podcast with the, the Institute of Physics on this this entire topic, um, and I, I I the the problem I have with the phrasing cancel culture is that it ultimately it's people being annoyed at being held accountable. And this is the thing here: cancel culture gives a buzzy word or a buzzy phrase to being held to account. Now. If you are doing things, whether you're tweeting online, you're posting online, you're doing something that where the intention and the impact is not lined up, that's on you because you should have spent the time to understand, you know, what, who am I trying to reach? Will this cause harm? Have I said something or could this be misinterpreted before you do that? And again, certainly in senior leadership and the roles that I am in. I have to be careful because obviously I shouldn't, I should be make, thinking before I speak is the key word here. And me thinking before I speak is different than someone who isn't in senior leadership, who doesn't have the platform that I have. And certainly there are people with much, much bigger platforms than me, like celebrities and all of those kinds of things. And that's, this is just part of the job that you must be considerate. And I, I dislike that we see quite a lot of, um, and mostly very privileged people claiming council culture, but then actually writing huge think pieces for like big publications or being on the news. And I was like, that's not being cancelled because there has been no ramifications. The point is that accountability is key here and accountability culture is incredibly important. Um, I also think, yes, that one of the things that I think is, is incredibly impactful is that for the most part, regardless of different backgrounds and so on, obviously within reason, um, that people can have accounts online, that people can have a Twitter, have a LinkedIn, talk online, be in Reddit circles or whatever it might be and share their opinions and share their voices. And 
in worlds previously, like I grew up in the 90s, sort of when all of this boom was starting to happen near the end. Before that, the only people that were really able to hold, you know, the the think or the thought leaders and the leaders to account were other people in those spheres that were in those realms with them. And that's not the same anymore. Um, and I think that can be an incredibly powerful too. The flip side of that is holding people to account doesn't mean disrespect and um, violence, whether that's physical or um, verbal. But I think accountability culture is incredibly powerful. Yeah. I love that phrase, accountability culture. I'm going to start using it. So I promised we could speak about your book. So can you tell me a little bit more about why you wrote it and some of the key themes? Yeah, so I wrote it because ultimately I'd seen a lot of DE&I books that were really focused on starting from the position of like allyship moving forward, but not fully delving into the fact that humans have made the decisions to get us to the position we're in right now. It's not being by accident that we are in the positions that we're in right now that we're trying to fix, you know, we made those decisions and now we're dealing with the consequences. And so the book really focuses in on from a global lens across gender, ethnicity, economic background, sexual orientation, caring responsibilities and so on, and the intersections of all of those, understanding the decisions that were made and how they were made and why they were made and what we can do moving forward in really meaningful ways. We delve into privilege, into bias, into intersectionality in depth. And each chapter is paired with an industry leader. So for example, we have interviews with the CEO of Starling Bank, Anne Bowden. We have interviews with Brian Reeves, who's the Chief Diversity Officer at Dell Technologies, and a whole host of other people that have embedded inclusion in their organizations at scale, sharing how they've done it, the meaningful things that they have made changes with to do things better, and also sharing the things that, you know, actually... When I did that, that wasn't the right thing. And this is why I now know that. So again, people can leave with something tangible and action-based. And the purpose of it is for people to leave with something tangible and action-based. I don't want people to continue the same cycle of, okay, I want to do something. What do I do? I don't know what to do. And the, the purpose of the book is to, is to really um, help people with that. So you talked about allyship in the book. And how can individuals and organizations become better allies? Yeah, I think allyship is an incredibly important part of DEI, both on a personal and systemic element. And the two things are separate. So personal allyship is about what like me and you could do singularly. And systemic allyship is about actually how do we rework, potentially break down and change processes to make sure that they work for everybody with a data-driven lens. And what people need to do with allyship is understand that it's not an overnight journey, certainly from a personal perspective. What it means is moving from um, awareness into education, into action and repeating on that. It's no use in being aware of the systemic inequalities and not learning and going into education onto why that is. There's no use in getting educated on it and not doing anything about it. And then there's no use when you do something about it that you don't continue that cycle of learning. And what I always say to people is like, consider privilege from a very nuanced lens. And I go into this in detail in the book. I think it's probably my longest chapter in the book um, is that privilege isn't just cut across, you know, gender, ethnicity, but across everything, every single thing, whether you are underrepresented, you can still be privileged. You can be privileged and underrepresented. And I talk about myself in that way. I, I identify with sort of being underrepresented as a young woman of color in senior leadership positions from a poor background and privilege because I am a senior leader who writes for some of the biggest platforms in the world and has, is listened to. And being listened to for me is one of the biggest privileges that you can have because if you have the privilege for someone of someone 
sitting back and listening when you speak versus talking over you. I mean, that's the biggest privilege you can get. So um, I think it's important to, to think about it in that nuanced way when you're talking about allyship. So like as a, as a woman of color, I can I am actively working on being an ally to the different black communities through different things I can do as a heterosexual person. I can work on being an ally to the LGBT plus community as someone with some disabilities, but not extreme disabilities. I can look at how I can help ally as an ally to different disabled communities. So it's thinking about it in that nuanced way. And I think that's what's really important is that introspection on, you know, how do I exist in the world? And it takes a lot of self-awareness. I think it takes sometimes it's a really difficult journey for people because, um, Nobody's saying that you haven't worked hard. Things just could have made it harder. Um, but sometimes that's really eye-opening for people. Um, but it's certainly a journey for me personally. I went on for years and continue to go on. Um, but that's why I'm able to move forward in a really proactive way because of that awareness of, you know, what can I do to make things better? Amazing. And so my last question is, because we are speaking to a business school audience, um, you've already given some quite concrete help to what organisations should be doing, but do you think there's something that business schools need to be teaching their students to create leaders who are open to being diverse and inclusive leaders? Yeah, I, I think what's important to, to remember is that inclusive leadership is leadership. So there's no separation or no, actually, no, there is separation at the moment, but there shouldn't be a separation. And um, when we, when we have business schools or areas or universities, whatever it might be, that are creating the leaders of tomorrow, what we need to do is ensure that inclusive leadership is integrated into that learning path. It's integrated into before people go out. A lot of my work is spent training and educating leaders and bringing them on a journey of how to be inclusive leaders because they've never had to be deliberately considerate of it. And that means different working styles. That means different kinds of leadership. That means understanding how to flex and shift your leadership depending on you know, the room that you're in, the realm that you're in, the industry that you're in, the people that you're speaking to understanding that um, empathy isn't just, oh, I feel bad for that person, but actually more so when it comes to being able to give really useful feedback, being able to really drive forward a vision and a strategy for a business with empathy and um, compassion built into that, as opposed to later on realizing that actually, yeah, we got to the end goal, but the entire team is burnt out. We've had huge turnover rates. Our attrition rates are through the roof and our retention rates are so low, they might as well not exist. Um, and that's what we need people to start to think about, certainly from, from a business school perspective. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Of course. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you so much to Shabi for being on the podcast. If you'd like her book, Demanding More, Why Diversity and Inclusion Don't Happen and What You Can Do About It, head to any good bookstore. Make sure to listen out the next Ambition podcast released every Wednesday.